Merhaba, everyone. Welcome back to the Turkish Breakfast Club. I'm your host, Miranda Lin. The month of March isn't just about International Women's Day. It's also Women's History Month. And I have to admit that my knowledge of Ottoman and Turkish history is pretty weak. The bits I do know are mainly dominated by men, like sultans, pashas, and maybe a couple of architects. But what about Turkey's herstory? This week, I'm joined by Professor Gülhan Balsoy from Istanbul Bilgi University. She teaches late Ottoman history, including the history of women, gender, labor, and medicine. So she helped me fill in a lot of the blanks, but also talked about how much we all still have to learn. So without further ado, let's get to it. Professor Balsoy, welcome to the Turkish Breakfast Club. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Miranda. So I've invited you on today because I realized that I was lacking knowledge about the history of women in Turkey and during Ottoman times. If I'm honest, the, the few names I know are from Turkish soap operas like uh, Hurem from the show Mütişem Yüzyıl or Magnificent Century. <laughs> so the question I posed to you was to introduce us to female characters who shaped Ottoman and early Turkish history. Thank you so much again, Miranda. So in the first place, maybe I should uh, say a, a couple of sentences about myself. So I work on women and gender. However, I focus mostly on ordinary women rather than the prominent ones. So I will also try to introduce you some of the like ordinary women that we really know too little about. But I hope it will give kind of an idea about the general experience of women uh, in Ottoman society. But uh, to start with, um, I'm happy that you had mentioned her and I decided to start with her because I know that Muhteşem Yüzyıl uh, had found an audience outside Turkey as well, had really attracted attention. And Hürrem is one of the very well-known figures. So Hürrem will be the first person that I will talk about. <laughs> Super. Although Hürrem was probably one of the most powerful of all Ottoman women in Ottoman history. Uh, still, what we know about her is really very scarce. It's kind of really very surprising. Leslie Pierce has a great book, Empress of the East, about Hürrem. And there she mentions how uh, she had difficulties of finding sources even about her. Uh, so you can imagine how uh, it's difficult to find about ordinary women as well. So, but uh, even we don't even know about the origins of Hiram so well, since maybe she was so powerful, there are different arguments as to her origins and different claims about her. The most uh, widely accepted idea is that she was somewhere from between present-day Poland and Ukraine. However, she was kidnapped by uh, slave traders uh, and then found her way somehow to uh, the slave market in Istanbul. And she was uh, lucky because she was sold to the palace. But there, the harem in the palace was a tricky place as well, because she didn't know the language, uh, she didn't know the manners, and also more important than that, she didn't know about the palace politics, which, uh, the harem politics there. But she probably uh, was um, smart and enough to learn all about that and learn about the palace politics. And she was kind of lucky to make her way to the bed of the Sultan, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent or Suleiman the Lawgiver. Uh, but the couple is kind of, yeah, uh, it's one of the reasons why the TV series also attracted attention because 
was a couple kind of toppled down all the traditions of the palace. Uh, because the palace rules, the harem rules strictly said that a sultan would have only one single son from a single woman. Uh, because in uh, 16th century Ottoman politics, the uh, sons of the sultan first compete among each other. And once they demonstrate that they are the leader of the dynasty, they are le the leader of the family, they are the leader of all the brothers, they would kind of prove that they could lead the empire. That is why the mother and the son kind of acted as a unit. And the mother would check uh, the training of the Shehzade, the son of the sultan, and then would help the son in his competition for power in a way. Because she would also gain power if her son was chosen, she would also secure her her place in the future. Yes, but uh, Hiram was the first in that sense. They didn't only have just one son, but they had more than one son and daughters as well. So they toppled down the uh, palace rules. And also she was kind of a leader in other, other senses as well. Hiram was the first who was manuscripted of the slave position. And then became a free woman and married to the sultan. Did the sultan usually have a wife, though? But not necessarily from the harem, but they, he would usually get legally married? Or is that quite rare as well? Uh, it's quite rare. Yani, uh, Hiram was the first, actually. Yani, the first sultan, for example, Sultan uh, Orhan had a legal wife. But after Haram itself turned into an imperial organization, institution, sorry, uh, the Harams were not legally married to the Sultan. Even also, not all the women in the Haram uh, had a chance to go to the bed of the Sultan either. So, so she really managed to rise through many different ranks of the court. She really pushed through all of the different levels to be very top. Exactly. Because the Haram women were largely invisible. They were kind of uh, lived their lives in the Haram, in the palace. Uh, but the woman in the Haram was basically slaves, uh, legally. Yani they were uh, owned by the Sultan. Uh, they couldn't own property, for example, themselves. Their property could be confiscated or uh, their life was bound to the sultan. In, in that sense, it's very important that Hiram herself became a free woman. And as a free woman and a legal wife of the sultan, she had many mosques or imperial complex built in Istanbul and other places of the empire. So in that sense, also, she played a role in uh, politics and also social life. She made herself visible in a way. But also one of the reasons why I chose or picked Hiram uh, to, to start with uh, is not only her power, but to come to the story of other ordinary slave women in Ottoman society. I'm guessing they're not all as lucky as Hurem. Yes, exactly. Uh, this time, yani, I picked a slave woman, which we learned from Madeline Zilfi's work uh, on slavery. This time, she mentions the very brief story about a certain Zekiye Hanım. Uh, Zekiye was a slave of the Mekkizade family uh, in Istanbul. The Mekkizades were a family of religious scholars, uh, who even had the seat of the Sheikhul Islam, uh, the top uh, religious scholar. The entire empire or in Istanbul? Well, yes, entire empire. Oh, wow. Okay. It was the uh, head of all religious scholars. Uh, 
it was a very important position. But somehow Zekiye most probably became kind of a member of the family in a way because uh, her grave is in the family grave plot of Suleymaniye uh, complex. Uh, which was one of the most prestigious uh, of all graveyards in the empire. And probably she's the only single slave woman having a grave in the fe- uh, in that graveyard, in that prestigious graveyard. Does it say on her gravestone that she's a slave or does it just her name? Yes. No, it says she's a slave and that is how Madeleine Zilf had found about her. And it's really very rare that she would have a plot there and also she would have a tombstone uh, writing about her and writing about the affection of the family uh, toward her. Uh, and this is all we know about her, unfortunately. So it all comes from the gravestone, all the information yeah. is just from her. <laughs> yeah, she, she was a slave, but she was loved by the family. Yeah. Uh, but she was lucky. The slavery issue is kind of very tricky for the Ottoman history because some historians, even some historians claim that, claim that Ottomans uh, didn't have a slave system. I was about to actually say, yeah, I remember being told like, oh, the Ottomans are different from other colonial forces because they never had slaves and that's what sets them apart. But they did. <laughs> yes, they did. Yeah, and that is a controversial issue in historiography. The scholars uh, do not have exactly the same ideas and there's a controversy, but the recent scholarship claimed that, yes, there was slavery, but it was much more different than the plantation slavery, for example, in Americas. But most of the slaves were kidnapped. They were kidnapped either from northern uh, Caucasian lands or northern part of the Black Sea. Or some of the black slaves came from Africa. So there was a distinction between the black slaves and the white slaves. And black slaves, for example, when they were bought by the palace, they never were became consorts, but only servants in harem. But the white slaves uh, were mostly employed in households. There were also many female slaves, female servants who were sexually harassed, subject to abuse, violence, and they almost had no protection at all. The only chance for them was to flee the households. But once they escaped from those households, there weren't so many uh, opportunities of paid work in Ottoman society, even in cities like Istanbul, which was the capital city. Yani, they almost had no means of surviving or earning their bread uh, work opportunities for women, especially for uh, before 19th century, was almost non-existent. So can you give a sense of like how widespread the use of slaves was? Like, was it only for the palace or like the top most elite families or were they used in all parts of society? Like, were they kind of like the the cheapest form of labor that everyone kind of depended on? Like middle class families probably afforded having slaves. Uh, in their households. They were called jariye most of the time, but they yani, uh, helped with the household chores, cleaning, uh, all kinds of chores in the household. But it was not only like the harem or it was not like the very wealthy households. Wealthy households most probably had more than one slave, but uh, yeah, middle classes, uh, even the middle class families would afford that as well. And how long did this go on for? Like, until what point was slavery officially banned? Mm-hmm. Uh, after Tanzimat in, in 1947, the slave market was closed down. 1947? Oh. 
sorry, 1847. For a very long time. Oh, okay. Was the slave market an actual like physical place or was it just sort of a, an idea, concept? No, no, thing? it was a real place, actually. And we can know about that from the travelers or from other documents. For example, one of them was uh, close to the uh, closed bazaar. Uh, the Grand Bazaar. One of the biggest mark Grand Bazaar was there was probably a slave market there, and there was a place called Avrat Pazarı, which historians do not agree, but most probably slaves were sold there as well, near Kuja uh, Mustafa Pasha today, roughly. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it it was a real place where slaves were traded. Wow. And later, uh, all slave trade was uh, abo- banned and abolished, but uh, that didn't bring a whole emancipation for the enslaved peoples in Ottoman society. So uh, what happens, for example, to a slave woman who escaped her house and then had to survive by herself. So I picked a case uh, from a petition I found from Ottoman archives about a certain Emine. Again, what we know about Emine is kind of very limited, but this Emine didn't have a house, didn't have any income, didn't have a job, and then didn't have anybody to protect her and applied to the police station, asking her to be placed uh, to an institution uh, which would take care of her. The only place uh, such an unprotected lonely woman would be placed was the Haseki institution, which again <laughs> connects us to Hiram. Uh, <laughs> because the Haseki institution was first instituted by Hase- Hurram Sultan as uh, her major imperial complex, complex in Istanbul. But by 19th century, uh, mid 19th century, uh, in 300 years, the funds uh, that would support the institution, support that imperial complex had uh, run out. And by early 19th century, the complex itself was in a very rather uh, poor condition. The name was a hospital, uh, but only the name was hospital. It, it didn't have a doctor. It didn't have any medical equipment. It didn't have e- even enough beds to have all the women. So it's maybe like a shelter then, like just ex- a kind of a building for women to go to. Exactly. And that's my claim. <laughs> exactly. So like poor women, elderly ones, uh, sometimes the insane, even the convicted women were placed in that ch- shelter because there wasn't a women's prison uh, so but all those different types of women stayed together the only thing that would uh, connect all those women was their destitution in a way is that a sign of how little like sort of services or support women had available to them in in that period in in society that one 
building houses every like from prisoners and insane women to just yeah. people who don't have family anymore exactly exactly that's the great question because yeah and that was also a period of transformation the society was changing the state society relations were changing in previous times maybe the neighborhood connections were uh, more close but by 19th century uh, Haseki institution Haseki hospital was one of the single first single place where women could be sheltered yani Emine's case is Again, kind of very ambiguous for us. Yeah, for her, having a shelter, being placed in a shelter was important. She would have a roof on her. Uh, but maybe she had to share the bed with uh, one or two other women. The po- quality of the food was not so good. Once they were admitted there, they were not let to go out. So although she was not a convict or a prisoner... She had to live like a prisoner. So she essentially lost her freedom to go out. Yes, in a, oh, wow. Yes, she had to pay a price for protection. On paper, legally, she was free, but practically, she wasn't free at all. So some women sent petitions to be admitted there, but some women also tried to escape there. Having got an idea about the what it means to be a kind of a destitute woman in Ottoman society in the capital. If you have no family, no protective bonds, no male family members or close relatives who would take care of you. So is it a, a silly question to ask if they could work for themselves and take care of themselves? There weren't so many opportunities, actually. That was the difficulty. And from there, I will come <laughs> to my fourth and fifth case, actually. Perfect transition. <laughs> Although we didn't talk with <laughs> each other previously, as your questions are leading us great. <laughs> Thank you. Happy to help. Before 19th century, there were women who were artisans, Owning property, but opportunities of paid work were really limited for women in Ottoman society. And one of those few opportunities would be uh, midwifery. It was not like a professional occupation in the sense we understand today, but midwifery for the Ottoman women were most likely in a way motherhood or farm work where they would learn by seeing rather than formal training. But by 19th century, that started to change. Uh, the newly establishing uh, medical institution or medical hierarchy required them to have licenses oh, okay. and then practice, continue practicing midwifery with their licenses in hand. Licenses made them uh, subject to more close regulation or monitoring, but at the same time they had some benefits. Uh, and to see those benefits, I will give the example of Nefise Shadiye, who was practicing in Istanbul. Nefise Shadiye, what we know about her is, again, quite limited, <laughs> unfortunately. But still, I'm setting a theme here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is why yani, I picked those women, because I uh, work on the cases of ordinary women, and we always work with very limited archival material, maybe. But still, yani, uh, we know more about Nefise Shadi because she had sent several petitions, not just one petition. So the petitions are about working at Medina, the holy city of Islam. Um, administrative petition was sent to Istanbul asking for a midwife who could speak Turkish and serve in the city. And Nefise Shadi was kind of a candidate. 
She wanted to go there. So women started having the opportunity to travel then. Yes, exactly. And she worked, I think, for two years or so. Uh, and she was asking for uh, the traveling expenses and some kind of a stipend. So she received some kind of a financial uh, help. And then again, a few years later, we find another petition for from the same, same Nefisa Shadi. This time she says that She's not still feeling so well and she asks for retirement. Although there is not such a formal retirement system for the midwives, she was asking for that. Good for her. Yes, I was very impressed that she was so outspoken, demanded something, uh, framing uh, retirement as a right of herself. So that shows us that things were changing a bit and midwives were Maybe not the leaders, but they were some kind of historical actors in that process. Well, I wonder, like in a lot of examples, when women started to go out into the workforce in some way, having paid work outside mm -hmm. of the home for themselves, that they sort of became more active socially. They started seeing themselves as independent um, and demanding rights for themselves and it sort of led to other effects in wider society if that's yeah actually yeah I think midwives were the first examples yeah, and that in my research I actually make that, make that argument because uh, again we have many petitions from midwives in the archives asking for monthly salaries same time they started to become more outspoken But um, yeah, that was an affair of the 19th century, actually. And midwives were not alone. Teachers, female teachers, for example, the teacher schools were established. And many, again, many destitute women started to work as teachers. Uh, and it was a way of also having mobility in social hierarchy, having their own salaries, building a life for themselves. And also uh, some factories were opened and uh, opportunities of paid work were starting to emerge in a way. So uh, my final example will be a factory girl to also show the transformation as well from yani that, that, that that's kind of a rough uh, and broad transformation from 16th century to the 19th, early 20th. But still it gives an idea about uh, how the experience of women had shifted throughout time. So Istanbul was uh, attracting a lot of foreign capital, but also the Ottoman financial situation was kind of very poor. And um, in late 1870s, uh, Ottoman government uh, declared financial uh, bankruptcy. So one of the sources, uh, major sources of income was tobacco. Uh, because Ottoman Empire uh, or Anatolia was a major producer of tobacco. So to control both production of tobacco and income from tobacco and taxation from tobacco, they established tobacco uh, regime factory in uh, Jibali region of Halic oh. today, which a building that still exists and being used as the Kadirhas University today. Oh, okay. I have passed by oh. there. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes, that was that was the factory building, actually. Oh, wow. it, it is a huge factory yeah. employing more than 2,000 uh, workers, and at least half of them were women or young girls. Wow. Uh, we are lucky in that case. We know a little bit more about this case because we have photographs. What they mostly do was to roll cigarettes. Oh, okay. So my example, Marie, 
I wrote about her name in a document. But a petition? This time it's not a petition. <laughs> it's a more controversial <laughs> document. Because as I said, those girls were sitting workshops. Uh, they had huge piles of tobacco and then rolled cigarettes all day long. And from other documents, for example, we learned that for 2,000 workers, there were only 20 toilets, which were in a very poor condition. So the being a factory worker was really... Uh, very hard. Yeah, it was not something easy. And if you really didn't need it, it wouldn't something it wouldn't be something you would probably choose. And for the working girls, the pay was really very low, almost a quarter of what male workers had earned. So it wasn't like uh, you were admired for being able to get a job in a factory. Like it was sort of because you need you really needed the money that you would even think about getting this kind of a job. Yes, most probably. And they maybe the job itself brought them some kind of empowerment. Uh, and it's not like they were only victims, but still, it was. We should keep in mind that it was not easy. But they were not victims as well. And that's how we know about Marie, because Marie was among the women in 1910s who went to a strike with the other workers of the factory. Love it. Good job, Marie. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so when the workers went on strike, demanding better pace, uh, better working conditions, the strike, they uh, marched all the way from the Jibali region, uh, from the factory where the factory was located, to the headquarters of the Reji administration at Karaköy. And then they were, uh, in a way, arrested by the police. Uh, to be released soon, luckily. Uh, but Marie was fired, <laughs> actually, and she was seen as one of the leaders of the strike, one of the few female leaders of the strike. Was, so there were, was, was she the only female that we know of um, that was part of the strike, or were there other ones that also signed their names? Uh, there were three women identified as the female leaders. Marie was one of those leaders, but there were definitely more women, at least half of the uh, strikers were women. So factory work was changing the visibility of women, changing in, in a way, uh, empowering them, making them actors of history. And the fact that Marie was part of this labor movement, this labor strike, demanding worker rights, is that a sign that women were gaining some sort of traction in equality, that they were becoming a larger part of society? It is, again, an excellent question, <laughs> Miranda. Thank you. Uh, yes, definitely. I know, uh, the social position of women were changing. Uh, this urban lifestyles, economics, politics was changing. But at the same time, starting from 1840s, we are having the first female uh, journals wow. and first maybe female uh, feminist figures in a way. The first uh, women's journal was uh, published by Greek uh, women of the empire and then throughout the 19th century there are many female journals which have openly feminist agendas women were definitely becoming more visible more outspoken demanding their rights uh, and their share their share in social life and political life was changing so i find those stories very important uh, looking only at the prominent women it is important and it is sometimes very inspiring to know about the female leaders or women who fought for something but struggles of ordinary women is i think very important as well 
uh, sometimes give us other types of lessons. And that's why I picked those stories. And I hope uh, you would enjoy and make ties to them as well. Thanks again to Professor Balsoy for guiding us through the archives and for working to expand our understanding of her story and the narratives it should include. If you're interested in taking a deeper dive, we'll post links to more of her work. A reminder that all of our episodes this month are also dedicated to the stories of everyday women in Turkey. So please go back and give them a listen. And you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Turkish Breakfast Club. Until next time, görüşürüz. Görüşürüz.